The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone is Beth Macy, who is the author of the award-winning book, Dope Sick. Also co-creator and executive producer and co-writer of the Hulu series, also titled Dope Sick. And the author of the brand new book, Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So this topic is near and dear to my heart um, because I, I I know a lot of people who suffer from addiction. I um, My family and my parents have worked closely with people in recovery and who were suffering from addiction. And I, I love how you approach the topic. So Dopesick feels to me um, as a book about the problem. Here is what is happening. Here is how it started. Here are the contributing factors that made it worse. And this book feels like here is a path to healing. So here are some solutions. Can you talk a bit about um, the new book um, after the success of Dopesick, which I think most people know because of the TV show. I can't imagine, you know, more people read the TV show or read the book than than watch the TV show. That's just how it works because it was so successful. But tell us about the new book. Yeah. So um, thank you. When um, when I finished writing Dope Sick, it came out in 18 and I was just so despondent about the state of America's response to the crisis. The young woman whose story had been tracking for a couple of years was brutally murdered after being abandoned by every system that was supposed to help her. And I never wanted to write about it again. Uh, but, you know, then you have a book come out and you have to go around mm-hmm. talking about it. And I started hearing about some really innovative things that would have helped Tess Henry, the woman I'm talking about. Yeah. And I thought, I want to write a book about what is working and in a way that will, especially as this opioid settlement money is beginning to trickle down to communities that will inform people about the best ways to spend it so that the money hopefully, and it is my sincerest hope, doesn't go to the same old drug war, drug war, incarceration first modalities and abstinence only care, which we know just doesn't work as well as medication assisted treatment. It's one of the the big revelations, I think, that if um, you have watched the TV series, you come away with it, I think, if you went into it having any preconceived notions about what addiction is and who may be suffering from the disease of addiction, you maybe um, stigmatized it or assumed that that person was weak, quote unquote, in some way. Um, Can you talk a bit about why that's such a big problem in terms of even getting the buy-in for substance um, abuse treatment that includes, um, you know, giving people medication to help deal with their withdrawals and other symptoms related to their addiction. I mean, talk about why the misunderstanding of what addiction actually is um, leads to 
solutions that aren't working, that don't work and will never work. Right. I mean, it, we could go back a hundred years and that's <laughs> been happening from the moment they, you know, uh, made heroin uh, and opioids uh, uh, illegal back in the Harrison Narcotics Act and other drugs, and then also criminalized the treatments for them uh, to, to the drug war, uh, you know, starting in the early 70s, which, you know, really harmed uh, brown and black people and, and poor white people who couldn't afford um, count legal counsel and really set up this dichotomy in our nation that we've all grown up in, um, that people who use drugs are bad, they're moral failures, that, come on, they just can't get with it, they're messing up our Thanksgiving dinner again. And so what we hoped with the show and with both of my books was to really flip that narrative and show you who the real criminals are, who the masterminds behind mm -hmm. this are. And they were millionaires who wanted to be billionaires, right? Like you were just talking about with your last mm -hmm. guest. I mean, that's one of the big things in the in the series that I, I sort of, I, I even someone who um, I'm read in on it, and, we, and we've previously had Sam Cajones on a few times talking about um, this crisis and his books are terrific on the topic as well. Um, but one of the things I think people could walk away from the series with in terms of new information is that the companies that made these drugs knew that they were creating addicts. <laughs> um, and, and you even in the in the book and in the series talk about the brain chemistry <laughs> and the fact that is literally changing a regular person's brain to the brain of an addict that is now dependent upon this drug that they got mm -hmm. because they had back surgery and and mm -hmm. that i think the fact that the stories in the series and in the book are so relatable that could happen to anybody anybody can get in a car accident hurt themselves yeah, and then and, and now they're you know at a, a clinic trying to get oxy or or taking heroin because they're addicted because of just the the misfortune of a car accident Absolutely. I was in an event last night in Roanoke, Virginia, where I live, and there was a woman came up to me and she said, today was the 25th anniversary of her twin sister's death from Oxycontin. Mm. She said, and I was so cruel to my sister. I stigmatized her. I thought it was all her fault. You know, her eyes are welling. I mean, and this is a story we hear over and over again. And she says, not until I watch. She said, I couldn't, I couldn't read your book. It was just would be too triggering for me. But I, my husband talked me into watching the show and he was a retired physician. And, and I finally got it in. Um, it, it was so moving. Here's somebody, her twin sister. Mm -hmm. She couldn't see her as a human being. It's really hard. I mean, I think if you if you've never suffered from addiction, it is hard to understand it. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to understand it. Um, but I think that we all in, in different iterations, I mean, in the world, we all sort of ad are addicted to other things. I mean, whether mm -hmm. that's money or food, food. or you know, uh, exercise, there's even positive mm -hmm. things that we're addicted to. Uh, praise from other people <laughs> you know there's a lot of things that you know aren't healthy um you know if you're if you're not doing them in moderation but but also in terms of the michael keaton character which i think is is the perfect segue into to really diving into raising lazarus specifically one of the things that's so fascinating about his character specifically is that he's a doctor who starts out sort of prescribing the drugs think you know but believing what the the drug reps are telling him about the effectiveness and just this is a miracle um they're lying but he 
prescribing these drugs and sees that he's creating acts, but also becomes one himself and then uses medication um, to deal with the addiction. Can you talk a bit about why medication-based treatment for addiction is so stigmatized? I mean, Mm -hmm. why is that stigmatized, but the opioid... And those companies aren't. (laughs) You're exactly (laughs) right. Like anybody, anybody with a, a, who's a doctor can prescribe Oxycontin out the waz. Nobody even comes after them unless it's like they're running a pill mill or something. And yet the treatment for the medical condition that the doctor created has been so stigmatized. And a lot of it goes back to the, um, I don't want to blame it on AA, but there's this sense that, um, that abstinence only modalities is the only way. And, you know, AA for alcoholism, abstinence does work. And that's why it was so important to write into this show. Michael Keaton's at his first rehab and he's like talking to the guy that runs it. And he's like, well, what were you addicted to? And he's like, alcohol. And then he's talking to the people who's addic- who are, have been addicted to opioids. And they're like, yeah, this is my sixth or seventh time. And they're not mm-hmm. getting better. They're relapsing, which is to be expected. And so what happens is, um, people who are against medicines have grown up in this abstinence is only clean a word i don't like to use you know that's the should be the only goal and so the what you hear most often from all kinds of people from drug court judges to people who run emergency rooms who don't want to prescribe buprenorphine is that oh that's uh, a that's not our job and b that's just treating a drug addiction with another drug and it's simply not true what happens is the the um the, the part of your brain responsible for decision making gets hijacked by this drug it craves these external opioids just to feel normal just to get up and not be on the toilet all morning you know they call it getting well people with OUD opioid use disorder call it getting well it's the first thing on their minds every morning and as somebody in uh Dopics, the book says, uh, at the end of your journey, you're not doing it to get high. You're doing it just to not be dope sick. Mm, I mean, that that's one of the things that I think I walked away this from the series with is, is really how sick you are when you are when you don't have the drug and that your mm-hmm. only goal waking up in the morning is, as you said, to just feel normal. I don't think that's something that people don't understand. I think people who are not connected to addiction think that people just want to get high like they just mm-hmm. want to like, you know, get high and take a nap or something. And I just think that they're misunderstanding. And that's why this series was so revolutionary. I want to talk about Big Pharma <laughs> um, mm-hmm. because in the, it, obviously the Sackler family is a focus in, in the uh, TV series and in the book. Um, and we've seen sort of news reports sporadically about updates and those proceedings in the courts. Um, But can you talk a bit about these pharmaceutical companies? Because there's a lot of different pharmaceutical companies that create um, Mm -hmm. opioids, not just Oxycontin's proper. Um, So talk about their role and, and whether or not you feel like they are continuing to exacerbate the problem. Um. Great question. Yeah. So Purdue Pharma starts this in 1996 with the, um, you know, the creation of Oxycontin and this false narrative that this drug was virtually non-addictive, right? And, you know, they, they co-opt the FDA, the guy who approves it then goes to work for Purdue a bit later making bank. And um, so that happens. Uh also like the hospital administrative board uh gets co-opted and so then you have this huge 
pain is a fifth vital sign, which pain is not a fifth vital sign. You can't measure pain. And, um, and everybody else starts coming in. They're like, oh, look at the Sacklers. They're making a lot of money on this. Let's mm -hmm. do it too. So then you have like Malincrot and other um, generic. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have said, I started with Oxy, then I went to Roxy, which is the generic made by, mm -hmm. uh, I believe, Malincrot um, or, or one of the generic makers. And, and then I went to heroin when the pills got hard to get. I mean, Oxy, Roxy, heroin, they will all say that. And um and then, you know, the distributors were kneecapped when the when there was a new law signed in the Congress passed and Obama signed. It sounded like a great law. I forget the name of it, but it was like fixing addiction, you know, and treatment. But what it did was it kneecapped these these people who write these laws, these lobbyists are so slick. And many of them mm. have come from who they used to work for. It's this right. revolving door we have to fix. But they basically kneecapped the DEA from going after suspicious orders, which is like a why a tiny town in West Virginia that has 400 people gets shipped millions of pills. And if they cared to look, they had to have known those pills were being diverted to the black market. It's just basic math. There's no way... Sorry about the dog. There's no way that, um, you know, a tiny town could could use that many opioids. But right. it happened times a million all over the country. I mean, that's the other thing, too, is that um, I don't think we we understood that, you know, these towns are there's not a lot happening around these towns. I mean, these towns are very isolated and yet they're having, you know, high rates of crime um, because of the the addicts that have been created and the pill mills that are being run. I mean, have there been enough changes to actually, even on the law enforcement end, because I'm not saying the criminalizing of the addicts, right? Because I think that we both are starting this conversation in agreement that that's not the approach that has been working. Mm -hmm. But what about trying to lock up the pill mill runners and the doctors, you know, or the purported doctors that are running these pill mills um, and prescribing pills? Because, you know, there's lines of people standing outside of a, nondescript building and yeah. that's that's being allowed well that's mostly been taken care of you know the show ends in 2007 so it's you know it's kind of a historical look back at the mm -hmm. recent past what we really need to do and these are the things i outline in raising lazarus is law enforcement when they're arresting somebody and i'm not talking about a big dealer i'm talking about most people with oud who are buying and dealing to support their own habit we need to be diverting them to treatment instead mm -hmm. of jail so that's why i write about models that are doing that we need to be capturing them right when they come out of jail making sure they have narcan making sure they have buprenorphine which the is the um you know the gold standard of care for medication assisted treatment or are connected to a methadone clinic we need to and, and that is just simply not happening to a scale to match uh the crisis and then what i say when i talk to doctors because i know not every doctor took a free trip to uh florida like the michael keaton character did to become um you know a paid speaker for purdue i know not every doctor did that but they participated in the system that allowed seven million americans to now be addicted they did um you know i'm sure not everyone did but but somehow you know they're it's all connected they participated they should participate in the solution so only eight percent of doctors have bothered to become wavered to prescribe 
uh, buprenorphine. I mean, and we have a treatment gap of 87%. That means that only 13% of the 7 million have, have been able to access care in the past year. I mean, that's a big, huge F. We'd get kicked out of school if we had a 13%. And we need we need the AMA to be rising up saying, hey, we need to get rid of this X waiver is what the waiver is called. We, you know, and it's, there's actually a bill in, in the Senate right now mm -hmm. um, that we're hoping gets passed by the end of the year that would take that requirement away. Because this, the problem is that we simply have to make the treatments uh, easier to get than the dope. And right now, fentanyl is so cheap. I was in Baltimore last week and somebody in the public health there told me it was selling for a dollar a pill what yes yes and um we, we i mean sure we have to secure the borders and and uh make it but but it's just so hard uh to capture every bit of fentanyl that's coming in what we really could do and what we're not doing is uh really work on the demand side it it does feel like the demand side is the side we ignore <laughs> um most often one of the other things too and I want to drill down on this point you're making about the ability of doctors to prescribe the treatments um, mm -hmm. for recovering addicts as opposed to prescribe the drug that made them addicted. Um, I mean, you, you, there's a great piece in the New York Times about where and, and even in your book, you're you're basically like following somebody who's meeting somebody in a parking lot in a van. Mm -hmm. So talk mm -hmm. a bit about how the government could bring resources to bear to systematize treatments like this and and maybe the AMA does stand up and require doctors um, to have this the ability to prescribe the treatment for addiction, you know, as easy as the ability to prescribe the oxy in the first place, which doesn't make mm -hmm. sense. When you think about mm -hmm. it, it's crazy. Um, well, I'm t I told you way going back to after the Harrison Narcotics Act in 1914, they, 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 uh, you know, it's been stigmatized for so long. It's like people just accept it. That doesn't mean it was the right way to begin with, right? Just like the drug war, same thing. And um, so, doctors have not been trained on how to deal with pain or addiction. Uh, the average doctor gets one to four hours of training on addiction. Most doctors coming out of school don't know how to recognize or treat um, a problem that took 108,000 lives in the last year. And until we make the treatments easier to access, we're just gonna continue to have deaths of despair. So you talked about harm reduction and that's this concept of meeting people where they are. That's why I opened the new book with a harm reduction worker who's a nurse practitioner meeting a guy who's in chaotic use and has been so for many years in a McDonald's parking lot next to a dumpster. And he's going to get him on buprenorphine. He's going to call it in the next day. He's arranged a discount for him through the federally qualified health center where he works. But he wants him to know two things before he leaves the parking lot. One, you you can get better. Most, most people with OUD think they can't. In fact, the largest group says they don't want to stop using drugs. And that's because they've been so stigmatized. And every time they've tried to get treatment, either they haven't been able to pay for it because maybe they live in a non-Medicaid expansion state or uh, they just can't get it. And there's so many waiting lists because there aren't mm -hmm. enough doctors willing to provide right. it. And the second thing he says is don't disappear. That means even if you, and this is a really like key concept, even if they relapse and return to use in a few days while on the medicine, still come back and see me because yep. we actually know that addiction's a chronic relapsing disease. Yep. And so it's this idea of, of enveloping them. That. That actually makes me tear up a little because I think that one of the things that um, 
is really hard for people to understand is that um, in, in, in AA and in NA, they say that relapse is a part of addiction. But I think the idea that people don't want to then ask for help in that moment, don't want to go back mm-hmm. to get the treatment in that moment because they feel like they've now failed and, you know, they, they're embarrassed, they're, they, feel, they feel shame, perhaps. Um, but to know that you have somebody that's like, that's a part of it. Come back. Keep coming back. Um, yeah. That's going to save so many people specifically because people that relapse in that moment, I I know and I've read and I also know anecdotally people that have have um, overdosed during that relapse because they didn't feel like they could come get help. Yeah. And moment. so-called Christians that, that you know, are just one woman said, I think when they relapse, we should let them die and take their organs. And the harm reductionist in the room stood up and said, y'all, do you know the song? They will know we are Christians by our love. I'm not right. feeling the love in the room. And we and 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 law enforcement, many of whom are elected and they have to say, you know, pretend to be tough on crime. And they see this as hug a thug. Like, look, this practice works. You're, if you give people in the jail MAT, their behavior will be better. They'll stop being sick and they're not likely to come back over and over like they are now. It feels like a human centered strategy. Um, and, and I'm so glad that you, you did the follow up, even though I know it has to be difficult to to hear stories like this a lot, um, but you're doing um, really the Lord. You're actually doing the Lord's work. Aww, right? Thank you, Zelina. Um, you're so kind. No, no, it's it's so true. And and again, you know, in earlier in the in the show, I was talking about mental health, um, and we were talking a bit with the White House, who just talked uh, just rolled out, I think, 1.5 billion dollars. And again, like um, there need there's still more that needs to be done. At least there's a little being done. But even just people making the connection these days between the mental health crisis we we are living in uh, and the opioid crisis we are living in, and connecting addiction with the fact that people are hurting out here. And yes. and people are in pain and we're living through a pandemic, which is traumatizing and people are losing family members and they're grieving. And then maybe they do pick up a substance um, to cope and we and we yeah. shouldn't shame them um, for that because that's a human thing. That is a human thing. Yes, absolutely. Particularly in these little towns that Purdue initially targeted. I mean, these distressed communities, I mean, you could, you can hardly blame them particularly when uh especially in the early days when you know they could get a prescription but they couldn't get a job so they would take half and sell the other half just to pay their their bills you know and and i'm so grateful to the showrunner danny strong for for letting us get the strong message about mat through Mm -hmm. michael keaton's character as well as just how many barriers people face it's it's a really really terrific uh, TV series and book, but also your new book, Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis. Thank you so much, Beth Macy, for being here this morning. Please stay safe. Thank you. It was my privilege. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. We'll be back tomorrow with more news.